Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. February, as we all know, is Black History Month or referred to by some as African American History Month. Black History Month grew out of Negro History Week, which was the brainchild of noted historian Carter G. Woodson. Woodson and others founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915. In 1925, the organization promoted the idea of Negro History Week, and the event was celebrated for the first time in February 1926, 97 years ago. The organization chose the second week in February as Negro History Week to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln, who was born on February 12th, 1809, and Frederick Douglass, whose birthday is recognized as February 14th, 1818. The organization, which is now the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, establishes the Black History Month theme every year. And this year's theme is Black Resistance. Brave Black resistance can be seen throughout our country's history and throughout North Carolina's history. One area where Black resistance has been prevalent and persistent is within the legal profession. Black lawyers have used the law and advocacy to resist the injustice and inequity that have and continue to plague our society. As we think about lawyers and the impact that they've made in North Carolina, we wanna take a moment to recognize the loss of two remarkable North Carolina legal pioneers. Charles Day, who passed away on December 25th, 2022, was a graduate of North Carolina Central University and Columbia University Law School. Charles Day was the first black tenured professor at UNC School of Law and served as the Dean of North Carolina Central University School of Law. We also lost recently Annie Brown Kennedy, who passed away on January 17th, 2023 at the age of 98. Annie Brown Kennedy was the founder with her husband of the firm Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy and Kennedy, the oldest law firm of black attorneys in the state. She was a graduate of Spelman College and earned her law degree from Howard University School of Law. Annie Brown Kennedy became only the second woman, black woman licensed to practice law in North Carolina in 1954. We send our thoughts and condolences to the family and friends of both. On this evening's show, we're gonna discuss past African-American legal legends who assisted in shaping African-American history here in North Carolina. Joining us in this discussion is our former colleague, Fred Williams. Fred Williams is a former professor and director of clinical programs at NCCU School of Law. 
Fred Williams began teaching at NCCU Law on January 1st, 1980, and retired in December 2021 after 42 years of service here at the law school. Fred has been an active member in the legal community for decades. In addition to being a beloved professor, Fred has been a public defender and a special Superior Court judge. Fred Williams, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I hope that we have a wonderful discussion. Absolutely. So we're going to start with, if you could share with us how you decided or what made you decide to enter into the legal profession. Uh, you are born and bred here in North Carolina. Um, both your undergraduate and law school degrees come from North Carolina schools. You, of course, have been a long servant of NCCU School of Law. So this is your state. You have been and, and have made an impact for decades. Take us back on how you began your journey and why you decided law. I, it's funny that I'm going to share it as I have shared it on a number of occasions. I was in my last year at Duke University and I wanted to be a certified school teacher. So I was doing my practice teaching at Lion Park Elementary School on the West End of Durham. And the principal there at that time was Dr. Coward, who was the principal when I was in the first through fourth grade at Lion Park Elementary School. And he had the same system in place uh, in 1972 that was in place when I was a student there. And that was when Students went to the restroom during classes. They had to have a little pass in their hands. And um, the rule was only one child should be on the hall at a time because he didn't want the kids playing during uh, class time. And I was going from the class where I was doing my practice teaching to the office when this little boy was out in the hall just running around acting foolish. And I stopped him and uh, asked him where was his past. And he looked at me and I won't repeat what he said to me, but as a result, I grabbed him in the collar and put him up on the wall. And you have to understand that I'm six foot four and about 220 pounds. And we're talking about a kid that maybe weighed all of 60, 70 pounds. And right after I did that, Dr. Coward came around the corner and said, Fred, what are you doing? And I told him what the kid said to me. And he said, you can't touch these kids. And I said, what do you mean I can't touch these kids? When I was in school here, not only did you touch me, you beat me with a paddle. And he said, well, times have changed. And you can only touch the kids when the parents have turned in, uh, you know, a slip saying that you have the authority to use capital uh, punishment, you know. And so I went back. Dr. DeBona was my uh, professor at Duke and explained to him 
what was going on. And I told him I didn't think that I could be a teacher if I couldn't touch kids who cursed at me in the hallway. And so what he let me do was do research for him in order to complete that course. And uh, I went and talked to the two people I knew that were in law. One of them was Charles Beckton. The other one was uh, a gentleman named Tony Axum, who practices law down in Georgia. And both of them said, well, Fred, you know, uh, since you're not going to be, you know, a certified teacher, go to law school. And this was probably (laughs) October, November of 1972. And so I had to make arrangements to take the LSAT, um, and I had to wait until that uh, was completed, and I applied to four law schools. I applied to Emory, I applied to Duke, I applied to Central, and I applied to UNC, and um, ended up going to UNC with the view that I was going to be a real estate attorney to do closings for my older sister's real estate company. And so that is how I ended up going to law school. (laughs) So you um, did not focus on real estate law. So again, there was a, a, a pivot in your plans Share with us uh, how that did not come to pass, where you decided to focus your attentions and why. Well, I did focus in law school the first two years on real estate law. I took every property course, every tax course, every real estate course, every commercial kind of course that was offered at UNC, which is where I ultimately went. and. Between my second and third year, they had began in most law schools to encourage law students to do internships because prior to that, you didn't get any credit for any uh, clinical type courses. You didn't get any credit for attending any courses that involve practical skills. While I was in law school in my second year at Carolina, I tried to take a course at Duke that was taught by uh, Tony Buccino. And um, two other individuals who were very much into practical skills. And Carolina wouldn't recognize uh, any credit to attend those courses. So after my second year, Tony Axum had graduated from Duke and he was working for the public defender's office in Detroit, Michigan. And he uh, said, why don't you come up and, and work for me for 10 weeks and do an internship in the public defender's office uh, in Detroit? And so I, I got my uh, four-year-old son, put him in the back of my uh, car drove up to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he and his wife lived because she was enrolled at that time at the University of Michigan in law school. 
and we would catch the train in to Detroit every morning to his job at the public defender's office. And he pretty much gave me free reign in doing things, you know, without standing over me, hovering, making sure as a second year law student that I did things right. And I fell in love. I mean, I literally just, I came back to UNC and I changed my entire course schedule. I didn't take any more property courses. I took no more tax courses. I pretty much fell under the spell of Baron McHale, who uh, had a class that allowed us to represent uh, criminal defendants before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on appeal cases. Um, they had just begun talking in the legislature about um, instead of appointed counsel, opening public defender's offices. And I think at that time there was a public defender's office in Charlotte, in Greensboro, and in Fed. And so by the time I finished my last year of law school, I knew that I wanted to be a litigator. And I frankly didn't care whether I was a prosecutor or whether I was a public defender. I just wanted to try cases because I had fallen in love with working in the public defender's office in uh, Michigan. And I applied after my graduation to uh, five DA offices in the state and to the three public defenders offices in the state. And I got a job offer from Peter Gilchrist, who was the DA in Charlotte at that time, and from Jimmy Little, who was the public defender in Fayetteville in uh, 1976. And I had interviewed with both of them in the spring of 1976. Both of them said, if you pass the bar, you got a job with us. And I passed the bar. And so it came down to who I was going to work for. Peter Gilchrist offered me $12,000. At that time, Jimmy Little had left the public defender's office. And Mary Ann Talley was the then appointed public defender. And she offered me $12,500. I went to Fayetteville. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Eagle uh, Review. And we're talking with uh, Professor uh, Fred Williams, uh, former uh, director of the clinical program at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And we are talking about uh, uh, legal history, Black legal history, African Americans in the legal profession in uh, North Carolina uh, that have championed the cause for uh, civil rights and uh, equal justice. And we're going to continue that conversation with uh, Professor Williams. We ask that you uh, stay with us as we take our break uh, right now. We'll be right back. So we'll see you on the other side. Good evening. 
My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and I would like to wish everyone a happy Black History Month, because Black history is American history. Without further ado, this is your Community Spotlight event. North Carolina Central University will be hosting a number of Black History Month events. From the third annual Errol E. Trobe Memorial Lecture featuring keynote speaker Patricia Matthew, to a screening of the PBS documentary, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom. You may find more information about the events at www.nccu.edu forward slash news forward slash 2023 black dash history dash month dash events dash nccu. My name is Caitlin Chesney and this is your community spotlight event. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our conversation with uh, Professor Fred Williams. Uh, this is the uh, beginning of African American uh, History Month. Uh, for us on the Legal Legal uh, Review, every day is uh, African American uh, history, but we are paying honor uh, and celebrating the uh, tradition. And we're starting off with uh, Professor uh, Williams uh, doing some uh, reflecting on, and as uh, as April mentioned at the uh, outset, that there have been uh, tremendous progress made in this state, as was championed uh, and led by uh, African-American attorneys who were in the uh, profession. And I must say that uh, Professor Williams was just one of those uh, champions uh, when he uh, became a uh, Superior Court judge here in the state of, uh, of North Carolina. But just kind of working back through the, uh, through the history, um, we've had quite a few African-Americans out of this state, some connected with the North Carolina Central University School of Law in one way or another to become some of the uh, leaders in the uh, profession. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, Floyd McKissick and uh, Julius uh, Chambers uh, being most uh, noteworthy. And uh, uh, Professor Williams, I know that you knew and worked with uh, both of them. Uh, so can you kind of just kind of talk about your recollection of the contributions that they made uh, to this uh, civil rights uh, movement that, that we engaged in today? Well, I, I'm going to start with Floyd McKissick, senior first. And, and many people will wonder what I'm talking about when I say Soul City. Soul City was this idea that Floyd McKissick had to take uh, land up in depressed northeastern North Carolina and turn it into a soul city of black people. And I think he uh, applied. I don't know whether he received it. I, I, I did not do research to prepare and to give you a complete factual history, but 
I recall Floyd McKissick from Soul City more than anything. He was, in fact, an attorney, but his goal was to uplift the average black person by providing them with a city, basically, that was designed to help them be part of the American dream. Uh, and of course, I'm sure you understand that there were many, many, many people who were uh, uh, objected to his efforts, but he, he was a persistent man. And I I know that he applied for grants. Uh, I, I know that they started some development up in Henderson uh, area and that they, uh, you know, actually did some development to do some building. I don't think they ever completed uh, their work, but I mean, he was a fighter from the beginning. Um, Lord, well, let me just, before you move, let me just add to that, uh, he did get grants from the uh, United States Housing uh, Administration and was uh, uh, short-circuited by uh, Jesse Helms. Absolutely. He did not want him uh, to uh, to succeed. Uh, but Floyd was also a graduate of North Carolina Central Law School. Yes. Who was one of the lead plaintiffs in a lawsuit to desegregate. Uh, the University of North Carolina School of Law back in 1955, I believe it was, uh, that uh, he was engaged in that effort and attended uh, that law school for a semester to come back to North Carolina Central uh, to, uh, to to graduate. And uh, and I think it's, it's worthy of note that this is Floyd McKissick Sr. rather yes. than Floyd McKissick Jr. Yes. And, and Arab, I, I deliberately kept Jesse Ham's name out of my mouth. Okay. Uh, I, I felt that. <laughs> because I, I, my respect does not flow that way. Okay. Um, so Floyd McKissick, Floyd McKissick was a pioneer in unimaginable ways, even to young people today, because he stood up to some of the most vociferous um, hatred that has been uh, spewed in this state, but but you couldn't deter him. Uh, I have a sister named Lariette. She's one of two twins. She also is a graduate of the NCCU School of Law and was one of the first minority students who graduated from our evening program. But I'll never forget when I was a youngster. Uh, we used to, I lived on the West End over on Moreland Avenue, and we lived down a hill, and there was a little precipice as you came down Moreland Avenue. And we would see um, a little braid sticking up in the air in the back of the police car. And it would be my sister Anna, who was three years younger than me, who had gone out somewhere with uh, Lariette. And they were doing a protest somewhere downtown at the Woolworth store on Main Street or somewhere. And Lariette would get arrested. 
And uh, Floyd McKissick, Billy Marsh, Judge William Pearson, Buddy Malone, one of those groups of people would always get end up getting Laurette out of jail uh, for marching and protesting. But before she got out, uh, Anna would always be brought home in the back of a, a patrol car. So, you know, I know all of those pioneering lawyers from Durham who basically gave of their time, energy, and effort, charged absolutely nothing to represent uh, peaceful and protesters during the civil rights movement of the late 50s and early 60s. And I mentioned those names that I did mention because they were lawyers who were from Durham. And I can almost assure you that the vast majority of them were graduates of the North Carolina Central University School of Law because they had nowhere else to go to get a law license. Carolina wasn't uh, allowing them there. Uh, I believe that the Michelle brothers uh, were instrumental in bringing a lawsuit against uh, UNC. And I think Eric Michelle was the beneficiary of that lawsuit and ended up doing his entire uh, law school career at UNC. Uh, I think also uh, Ralph Frazier was one of the beneficiaries of a lawsuit so that they attended um, UNC. Mm -hmm. What interests me is that many of the people, well, not many, some of the people who actually uh, were allowed to go to UNC after lawsuits you know, we'll go for a semester, a year, and kind of say, well, this ain't for me. <laughs> and we'll ease on back over the Central to complete their degrees. Uh, I I graduated from UNC in 1976. Um, when I was there, the entire three years that I was there, there were never more than 50 black students at the UNC School of Law in all three classes. Each year, our enrollment went down. Um, the one thing I can say that was a positive was we did have one black law professor, and his name was Charles E. Day. And uh, I'm sure to the chagrin of many, of the uh, white professors, Charles Day had at least, and, and I mean this, we only had 26 people in the law school of color when I graduated in 1976. Charles Day had 26 stepchildren that <laughs> he had to you know, look, he didn't have to, but he did look out for us over the course of our time at the UNC School of Law. Yeah. And and, and April mentioned him in uh, in, in, in the opening uh, that uh, Charles, Charles Day, who 
was a son of Durham, uh, graduated from uh, NCCU under, undergrad and then went to Columbia uh, University, uh, made it a practice of his to create community uh, for those uh, African-Americans and, and people of color who were at uh, Carolina. And then he came to North Carolina Central, where he then gave five years as the uh, dean of this law school. Herb, I'm, I'm going to say this just one time to suit my horn. <laughs> I was a new professor at NCCU when we had a dean search after Harry Groves decided to resign. I was the newest professor in the law school at the time, and none of the other professors wanted to be the chair of the dean search committee. So I was, I don't know whether y'all have ever seen this movie, Putney Swope, <laughs> but I was uh, elected to be the chair of that search committee because nobody wanted to vote for any of the other senior members. And I was the chair of the search committee that brought Dean Charles E. Day to the North Carolina Central University School of Law as the dean. All right, and uh, and I remember that uh, that well, and uh, an excellent choice uh, that uh, was made. And after five years, uh, uh, Charles returned to uh, uh, Carolina, uh, but also connected with uh, Carolina. You, you talked about uh, Julius Chambers, uh, who was probably nationally the consummate uh, civil rights attorney. And uh, can you kind of Share some light on uh, on uh, Julius Chambers and, and your knowledge of him. Uh, I have great and fond memories of Julius Chambers and a little com side comment. The reason I was permitted to serve at North Carolina Central University School of Law for as long as I did was because Right when he was getting ready to resign from being the chancellor, he sent me a letter reinstating, excuse me, reinstating me to the NCCU Law School faculty in 20, uh, 2001. But uh, when I was in law school, uh, the law firm of Chambers, Ferguson, Beckton, Stein, and then they added other people as time passed, was the premier law firm in the state. They did mostly civil rights kind of cases. They, they did other kind of cases to make sure that they were able to pay their uh, lawyers who worked for them. But Julius Chambers was the keystone to that firm. He was a civil rights advocate um, from, I mean, as long as I've known him, I believe he brought the lawsuit against the Mecklenburg County Charlotte school system back in maybe it was in 1958 um uh, some time 
around that time, it was in the late 50s, um, he, because he brought that lawsuit, uh, and I know he argued it in before the Supreme Court of the United States and was successful, that gave a lot of courage to other lawyers to bring lawsuits. And we had a proliferation of lawsuits regarding civil rights and voting rights and school rights um, that were precipitated by his advocacy for African-Americans, but really for all citizens of North Carolina. Um, he, he was just an amazing man. Some people hear you talk about him and they think he was uh, six foot five, uh, <laughs> you know, 250 pounds. Julius Chambers was all of 5'10", if he was 5'10", and weighed all of 175, 180 pounds. But he was one vociferous advocate. Uh, he, he taught me to make sure that whenever I went to court, I always took the rules that were going to guide my litigation. If I were doing a criminal case, he and, and because I practiced mostly in uh, the state courts, he would say, take chapter 15 and chapter 15A of the North Carolina General Statutes. And don't you ever go to court without the rules of evidence. Those were, in his words, the Bibles that lawyers who were litigators needed to always have at their disposal. And and I learned early on that, you know, when I tried cases, Julius's view was, always put somebody else on trial other than your client. Just period. <laughs> Don't let them focus on your client. <laughs> let them focus on somebody else. And he said the only way you could do that was know the rules of evidence and what you could or could not get in. And to have the rules that were procedurally required to be followed by the judges that you appeared in front of. And I learned early on that you know, the best way for you to win, if you couldn't win the verdict, was to prepare a case on appeal. And the best way to prepare a case on appeal was to make the judge who was presiding have to make decisions. And life is such that if you get a judge who has to make 50 decisions during the trial, then I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And the way you win on appeal is to show the judge was wrong in some ruling he made or she made, and it affected the rights of the person who you were representing in a substantial and unfair way, such as to be a violation of due process. And, mm -hmm. and I, those are things that I learned from Julius Chambers. To me, 
He and Charles Beckton were two of the most, and I'm just talking about North Carolina because I know lawyers other places who are just as uh, well-versed as them, but he and Charles Beckton were two of the best litigators that I have ever um, been around in my life. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about past African-American legal legends who have assisted in shaping African-American history in North Carolina. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio as our guest, Professor Fred Williams. He is a former professor and director of clinical programs here at NCCU School of Law. He recently retired after 42 years of service. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Over the past few years, critical race theory has been a major point of contention in state governments. But with all the controversy, few people actually know what critical race theory is. So what is it? Critical race theory is an academic framework and legal analysis that explains that race is a social construct created to oppress certain groups of people. Additionally, it explains that the legal institution in the United States uses race to perpetuate inequalities between races. The controversy has derived from the want of many school boards to add a course on critical race theory to grades K through 12 in schools. Critics of the theory believe that it should not be taught to children, and supporters believe that it should be taught because our nation's history with race relations continues to have a long-lasting effect on people of color today. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking this hour with our former colleague, attorney Fred Williams, who is a former professor and director of clinical programs at NCCU School of Law. He has been in the Durham legal community for decades, and he's been sharing with us his interactions and impressions and just a wealth of information about some of the other legal legends here in North Carolina. Um, Fred, we want to ask you about uh, Karen Bethay Galloway, who is now Karen Bethay Shields. So she was one of the legal legends, and she still is, um, who has made a big impact on um, North Carolina law, and I know she has made an impression on you as well. Can you provide us with a little bit more information about her and um, how she has impacted you? I knew nothing about Karen Galloway until a case 
uh, arose in, I think it was Wilson, North Carolina. But it, anyway, it was Beaufort, Beaufort, North Carolina. It, it was on the I-95 corridor. And um, this young lady had been raped by a jailer uh, in self-defense. She had retaliated. Uh, the jailer was killed. I think Karen was two or three years ahead of me. She went to Duke Law School and graduated from there and passed the bar. And just about as soon as she, I would say, hung her license up on the wall, she was uh, retained to represent Joanne Lowe. She had a co-counsel, which was a smart move at the time, named Jerry Paul. Now, how smart it was is up to debate, but Karen was a, I mean, you would never have thought that she literally had so little practice based on the manner in which she represented this young lady. And I mean, she challenged every, every step of the prosecution. And and actually, um, I'm sure Jerry Paul had something to do with it, but that was Karen Galloway. And and she is remembered for that to this day. She, it, she had probably as much influence on females going to law school and feeling that they could be litigators as much as anybody during that time. Karen uh, still practicing today, to be quite honest with you. Um, and, and I mean, Karen believed in uh, justice. She believed in I'm going to make you treat people right. And if you don't, then you're going to have to deal with me. And dealing with her was not a pleasurable event. Um, she was absolutely one of the most fierce advocates for the Lester quote-unquote, people in society. Uh, and, you, you know, people say, well, you know, she always represents somebody who committed the crime, and I always would chuckle and say, you know, people get accused of committing crimes who didn't do a darn thing. They, they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that's the price that you have to pay. And Karen will represent them. And she would... Um, I mean, do just tremendous job. Um, I I still admire her to yeah. this day. Yeah. And I think those people who have the opportunity to interact with her find her to be uh, especially charming because she is so um, demure. Uh, the only problem is, is once 
you cross the door into the courtroom, you have to forget that and realize that you messing with the wrong person. <laughs> um, she ended up, and, and I'm going to throw in the little plug here for Jim Hunt, because he's the governor of this state that I admire the most. He went against the grain in every respect, appointing black judges all over the place, uh, served his two terms, had to end his role as the governor. He came back and won two more terms. And during all four of his terms, I would be willing to bet he appointed more black judges around this state than all other governors combined. Uh, he was a champion and he appointed Karen to the district court bench, despite the fact that she was not a well-liked person because of her role in representing Joanne Lowe. Yeah. Uh, Karen did not choose to stay on the bench because she felt that um, she had a different calling, and that was to be a, an advocate and a litigator. And she has done that. Uh, um, she's, what, close to 50 years. Yeah. Tremendous contributions uh, made by, uh, by Karen to the, uh, to the profession at a time. I that, can't hear. Uh, uh, this was a contribution made by her at a time when uh, women lawyers were not out front or uh, really respected as being uh, out front uh, at that time. And uh, But uh, she made a, uh, a real mark on the profession. And if you go back and you start with judges like Elrita Alexander out of uh, Greensboro, and uh, April, you mentioned uh, Annie Brown Kennedy out of uh, Winston-Salem, who went on to become a, um, a legislator in the North Carolina uh, General Assembly, the first African-American female uh, to serve in the uh, North Carolina uh, General Assembly. Uh, Karen Galloway was just a follow-up on the, uh, the outstanding contributions that they had made and the images that they had made that uh, Black African-American uh, African -American women uh, could be a force in uh, North Carolina, and uh, and they were. Uh, so uh, I just want to just add that to uh, Fred's uh, generous comments about, uh, about Karen. Uh, you may want to just talk a little bit more about uh, Annie Brown Kennedy, who just passed. Uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago at uh, 98 years of, uh, of age, leaving behind a uh, still thriving law firm in, uh, in Winston-Salem. Well, I, I will say this. The one thing about Annie Brown Kennedy that stands out to me was she ran the firm of Kennedy, 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 and Kennedy. Um, and, and I mean, she ran her husband and she ran those two boys of, of hers. And, uh, and, and so her greatest contribution to me, because I, you know, I didn't keep up with her, uh, 
performance when she was a legislator. Um, I know she ran the office, but those three men uh, had a blossoming practice. They represented people that the four of them deemed to have been treated unjustly by the powers that be. And I don't care whether it was a corporation. I don't care whether it was a state agency. Um, they were some formidable uh, litigators and advocates for the downtrodden. In, 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 and they didn't just limit their representation to people from Winston-Salem or Forsyth County. They practiced law all over the state. And for me, Annie Brown Kennedy was sort of the head of the firm of Kennedy, 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 and Kennedy. And one day we will tell some funny jokes about the uh, brothers Kennedy and all of their fun uh, activities <laughs> as twin brothers. Uh, I don't know whether you know them, April, but we had to figure out a way to determine who was who, and and, and we did. And it had something to do with the clothes they wore. <laughs> yeah, well, they were. Uh, they, 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 these were some real leaders that uh, that we had, and and, and April, there are so many more uh, that mm -hmm. uh, that we have, uh, both on both both sides, both males and females. Mm -hmm. uh, but we we worked together. Uh, there was never a distinction made between being a male leader and being a female leader. Oh. You were what you uh, were. The North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers brought all of these people together. And all of them exhibited leadership skills, uh, demonstrated that uh, every day, both in terms of organizing efforts to increase the presence of African-Americans uh, in the uh, legal uh, profession as well as operating their own individual businesses. And uh, they all ended up in high places. I mean, we go back to, uh, you know, we start with Sammy Chess as one of the first African-American uh, Superior Court judge, judge uh, Arthur Lane, Ron Bobby, and then we go to uh, Henry Fry, who became the first Chief Justice of the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court, uh, Judge Irwin, who was at the North Carolina Court of Appeals, and then the uh, U.S. District Court for the Middle District of uh, North Carolina to uh, G.K. Butterfield, uh, who was also on the uh, North Carolina uh, Supreme Court and became uh, a congressional representative following Frank Balance and Eva Clayton, all central uh, grads who made names for themselves and who made a mark in the uh, civil rights uh, era. Uh, and beyond, and uh, but there, there are just so many that we can uh, that we can look to and uh, lift up as uh, leaders in the hey, struggle bro, for equal justice. I, I, I'm going to add this without a question. Uh, you know, Clifton Johnson was from Charlotte and a graduate of 
the NCCU School of Law. He served, I believe, as a district court judge, one of our first African-American district court judges, and then served on the Court of Appeals for I don't know how long. Um, the one thing I recall, and I was the secretary of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers for probably 20 years. I loved the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. We had an executive committee meeting once a month somewhere in North Carolina. And on Friday afternoons, I can tell you that I was happy to go to our executive committee meeting uh, wherever it was held. The reason for that was the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers worked together to influence the appointment of black judges at every level across this state. We would get a petition up if a opening came at the district, the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, the federal courts, uh, and, you know, write whoever was responsible for the appointment and say, the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers recommends and suggests that you appoint so-and-so. And it carried weight. I'll never forget one Friday evening, I was at my home on Fayetteville Street after having been interviewed by Governor Hunt. Herb Joyner and Charles Day had come to pick me up to take me to an executive committee meeting of the uh, North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers uh, in Henderson, North Carolina. And as we were about to walk out the door, my wife Janice said, Fred, um, you've got a call. I said, well, tell them I'll call them back. She said, uh, I think you want to take this call. I said, why is that? She said, it's the governor of North Carolina. And I'll never forget, he told me that he was appointing me and man, we, it was almost, we had a celebration from my house to that meeting. And that night we <laughs> celebrated the, my appointment. It, it was one of my most favorite memories of my association with the individuals who comprise the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. And it, that organization was a formidable force in getting many individuals of color appointed to judicial positions, not only in state courts, but in the federal courts in this state. Um, Jim, Jim Beatty, I think, was one. Well, actually, before Jim Beatty, his former law partner up in Forsyth County, what what was his name, Irv? Richard Irwin. Richard Irwin, yeah. Richard Irwin, yeah. Um, the, the association made such a valuable contribution to, and I hate the word integration, uh, to the diversity of the judgeships and to the judicial system 
because, you know, sometimes uh, district attorneys needed to be appointed. Public defenders needed to be appointed. Um, and so I, I, I hope uh, that the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers will somehow, some way, become a force to be reckoned with again as it was in the 80s. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we can't thank you enough. Our former colleague who we miss dearly here at NCCU School of Law, Professor Fred Williams, thank you for your thoughtful insight on the Black legal community here in North Carolina and the impact so many of the state's Black legal legends, and not just Black legal legends, but legal legends within the state and the impact they have made in North Carolina. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this was fun. <laughs> I enjoyed it. it. It brought back a lot of memories and it brought back far more memories in my head than I was able to speak about um, during this interview. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And that just means we, we need to have you back on. So be on the lookout for a, a call, email, text from us. Okay. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe. <laughs>